Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 153, Leon Trotsky, Part 1. Last time, we covered the life of the great writer Fyodor Dostoevsky. Today, we go in a completely different direction with the life of revolutionary Leon Trotsky. Yes, I know. Last time I said I was going to cover the life of Leo Tolstoy next, but the books I ordered on his life haven't come yet, and the ones on Trotsky came early, so I made the call. That, and there had actually been a request from listener Ryan on our Facebook page to do a biographical podcast on Leon. But before we start, I'd like to say thank you very much to listener Sandra for the very generous donation to the podcast. It is greatly appreciated, as it will go a long way towards getting the books needed to continue things. Born Lev Davidovich Bronstein on October 26, 1879 in Yanovka, Kherson province in southern Ukraine to a moderately well-off Jewish family. His nickname, by which he was known until he was 23, was Liba, according to Robert Service, but others, like David North and Walter Lecure, dispute this and say his childhood name was actually Lyova or Lev. They claim that since the Bronstein family did not speak Yiddish, they would never have used a Yiddish name like Liba. And of course, but this was not the norm, as it was estimated that fully 97% of Jews living in Russia believed that Yiddish was their native tongue, and this was not so with the Bronstein family. Numerous biographies have been written about this enigmatic and oft-times contradictory personality. Some view him as a sympathetic and idealistic character, but some, like the aforementioned Robert Service, see him as a murderous, conniving hypocrite who deserves only contempt. While I lean a little bit towards Service's point of view, I think that Trotsky, and especially his family, should get some sympathy, especially because of his opposition to Stalin in the latter part of his life. While born Jewish, Lev and his family were decidedly non-religious. During his life, he was what we would call a devout atheist, although he would oftentimes sympathize with his fellow Jews, especially when the numerous pogroms were promoted by the Tsarist regime. Because of his lack of ability to speak Yiddish, he really had very few real close friends when he was growing up. He was the fifth child of eight fathered by David Leontovich Bronstein and his mother Anna. The family spoke a combination of Ukrainian and Russian, known as Zurzik. They were a prosperous family who worked hard for a living. David built up his farm by taking over farms of other Jewish people normally, and those who couldn't farm very well, or not enough to sustain themselves. He was a very shrewd businessman who prided himself on his success. Kind of ironic that he would be the very type of person Trotsky would despise when he grew up. When he was nine years old, Lev was sent by his father to Odessa to go to a German school, which by that time had been thoroughly Russified. The Russification of schools throughout the kingdom had been ordered by Alexander III. He would stay with the family of an older cousin, Moisey Spencer. The Spencers were a more urbane and learned family, as Trotsky's father was illiterate. The cousins nurtured the young boy, introducing him to classic literature, both Russian and European. They even had banned books on their shelf, like Leo Tolstoy's play, The Power of Darkness. Politically, they were somewhat liberal, but not radical at any level. As for the Tsar, quote, there was dissatisfaction, but the regime was held to be unshakable. The boldest dream of a constitution as possible 
only after several decades. Talk of politics, though, was hush-hush around the young boy, as Lev put it, quote, because they were afraid I might say something censurable at school and get myself into trouble. They went so far as to avoid newspapers in the house, lest they would put radical ideas into his head. After Alexander II's assassination in 1881, stricter laws against Jews were set to restrict them from a number of positions, especially when it came to secondary school. A quota of 10% of Jews in school was decreed, which meant that you had to pass a test to get into them. The first year, 1887, young Lev failed, but got in the following year. This was the first time that he encountered prejudice against the Jews, but of course it would not be the last time. His being Jewish never really meant all that much to him, had little to do with his upcoming radicalization. As he put it in his book, My Life, quote, This national inequality probably was one of the underlying causes of my dissatisfaction with the existing order, but it was lost among all other phases of social injustice. It never played a leading part, not even a recognized one, in the lists of my grievances. Other Jews in the Bolshevik and Menshevik groups felt differently, like Yuli Martov and Pavel Axelrod, as they had seen the violence against their people firsthand. This is likely why there was a disproportionate number of Jews in the communist movement compared to the general population. Still, they were a decided minority in the movement, never numbering more than 25%. There are others who want to put the number much higher, citing Lenin's great-grandfather and a relative of Stalin's being Jewish and classifying them as such, but that's kind of sheer drivel. Stalin studied for Russian orthodoxy in the priesthood, and Lenin had very little to no encounters with the Jewish religion in his upbringing, and likely didn't even know that his great-grandfather was Jewish. In Odessa, young Lev lived in the most modern place that he could have lived within the Pale of Settlement, an area designated for Jews to live. This was first created by Catherine the Great in 1791. It included much of present-day Lithuania, Belarus, Poland, Moldova, Ukraine, and parts of Western Russia. There were cities within the Pale, though, where Jews could not live, and then there were cities outside of that area where only a handful of Jews, usually very wealthy ones, could live there. Lev's cousin, Moisey Spencer, then opened up a liberal publishing business which exposed the boy to the radical side of Russia. In school, he was now noted to be easily the best student in his class. He was also a rabble-rouser, as evidenced by his expulsion from school for part of a year. He was worried about what his father would say, but instead of being angry, his father was actually proud of him as the reason for his expulsion was standing up to a lousy teacher and booing and whistling at him. Another time that Trotsky got into trouble was standing up to an incompetent teacher of literature, Anton Gamow. If any of you think that, hmm, this is a strangely familiar name, you would be right. Anton's son, George Gamow, became a world-renowned theoretical physicist who defected to the Western Europe's region, I think Berlin and that area, in 1933, but he quickly moved from there, and then he came to America. Well, as young Lev grew, he began to view his father differently. Instead of this hard-working farmer, he started to think of him as an oppressor of others. Young man felt as if, quote, something new had grown up, like a wall between myself and the things bound up with my childhood. Like any teenager, he began to rebel against his parents. In the atmosphere of 1890s repressive Tsarist regime, 
Radicalization was the likely outcome, as it was with many young Russians. By 1895, Lev Bronstein had spent seven years at the St. Paul's Realschule, which was the limit. He needed to move on. He left Odessa to go to Nikolaev, a small town on the Black Sea. It was here that he began the transformation into the man that would be known as Leon Trotsky. He only stayed in school for a year as he started to read radical books like Nikolai Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done, as well as works by Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. These were all banned by the authorities, but the young man could care less. Challenges to the powers that be were becoming commonplace all over the country, especially at the universities. With the death of arch-conservative Alexander III and the ascension of the ill-prepared Nicholas II, the talk was no longer of reforming the monarchy or transforming it into a constitutional one, like in Great Britain. The talk centered on revolution and the eventual overthrow of the government. This was the discussions that went on with the, the group Lev had joined. The main character here was a gardener named Franz Shivgovsky. Around this time, two men came to the forefront of radical Marxism, Georgi Plachanov and Vladimir Ulyanov, Lenin. Both of these men were trying to steer the revolutionary movement away from focusing on a peasant uprising, something that Bronstein had believed in at the time. This was known as the populist movement and was to set up the dispute between Trotsky and Lenin that would rage on in the future. Within the group that Lev hung out with, he was quickly becoming known as one of the brightest stars because of his wit and intelligence. He also met a woman named Alexandra Sokolovskaya, who he debated kind of rudely. She left the group because of him thinking, oh, I'd never want to see this man again. But, of course, she would be wrong. In 1897, he began to organize workers in Nikolaev into a group known as the South Russians Workers' Union. Here he came back into touch with Alexandra, who began to see the young man in a different life. Lev began to dive into something that would show off his genius, journalism. His first newspaper was Nasha Delo, or Our Cause. As Joshua Rubinstein puts it in his biography of Leon Trotsky, quote, Lev was establishing a distinct pattern in his life his revolutionary activity, and his professional life as a journalist and editor rested on the steadfast belief in the power of the word. Basically, Trotsky believed that he could talk his way out of any problem or change people's minds with his oratorical and writing skills. It is this brash, egotistic opinion of himself that was to be his downfall later in life when he battled Stalin for control of the Bolshevik Party and the Soviet Union. His work, though, did not go unnoticed by the authorities. A roundup of revolutionaries began in January of 1898, with the young 18-year-old Lev Bronstein being arrested on the 28th after attempting to hide out in the countryside. He was sent to the prison in Nikolaev, the first of 20 prisons he was to go into over the next few years. The jails of the Tsarist Russia were pit holes of despair. Torture was not out of the question, which caused some to commit suicide, go insane, or agree to spy on their federal radicals like Stalin supposedly had done. Lev was spared the torture, but was put into isolation, which was especially hard on the young man. As he put it, quote, 
The solitude was unbroken, worse than any I ever experienced afterward. By the summer, Lev was transferred to a prison in Odessa, where he was allowed to have access to the library. It was here he began to hear about the works of Lenin, and when he was transferred to a jail in Moscow, he somehow got his hands on his book, The Development of Capitalism in Russia, the book that would turn Lev Bronstein into a Marxist. In the Moscow prison, he would marry Sokolovskaya and would also learn their fate, exiled to Ustkut and Vikholensk in the Irkutsk region of Siberia. It would take them three months to make it to one of the transit prisons where they were put on a barge to head to their final destination on the Lena River, which took an additional three weeks. Here, Lev began another newspaper, the Eastern Review, under the pen name Antid Otto. He met other radicals here, like Felix Dzerzhinsky, the first head of the dreaded Cheka secret police under the Bolsheviks. He also came into contact with Mikhail Uritsky, who would become the head of the Petrograd Cheka. They debated how the revolution should be run, arguing about whether to start with the assassination of the Tsar's ministers or not. Lev said, quote, Our task is not the assassination of the Tsar's ministers, but the revolutionary overthrow of Tsarism. In 1902, he received his first copy of the Marxist newspaper Iskra, or Spark. One of its editors was none other than Vladimir Lenin. Based in Zurich, Switzerland, Lenin had left exile in Siberia in 1900 and was granted permission to leave Russia. The newspaper and the book that Lenin had authored, which was also called What is to be Done, made Lev realize that he had to head out to Europe and join these people. By now, Bronstein and Sokolovskaya had two young children, both girls, Zenadia and Nina, two tragic figures in the life of Trotsky, and that you'll hear in the next episode. Alexandra knew that she could not keep her husband with her and actually permitted him to an attempt an escape. She would only see him a few times after that and amazingly would never condemn him for leaving her, even when Stalin had her captured, tortured, and eventually murdered. Lev Bronstein made his way out of the camp and was given a false passport under his new name, Leon Trotsky. He eventually made it to Samara, where he was given another name, Pero, or the pen. By now, Lenin had heard of the young revolutionary and sent a message to him that he needed to make his way to London via Zurich and pa Paris. In October 1902, Leon Trotsky knocked on the door of Lenin's apartment three times as he was told to do so. Lenin was still in bed, so his wife, Najda Krupskaya, opened the door and greeted Trotsky. She went to her husband and announced, The pen has arrived. He was quickly introduced to the six members of Iskra's editorial board. Vera Zazulich, Yuli Martov, Georgi Plachanov, Pavel Axelrod, and Alexander Potrasov. Lenin wanted to put Trotsky into a position as an editor as well because it was equally divided at the time, which led to these disputes going on for weeks with no resolution. Hoping that Leon would break the ties in his favor, Lenin made the proposal but was shot down by Plekhanov. Still, Trotsky became a writer for Iskra and showed off his remarkable talents at it. Urged to travel around Europe making speeches, he met the love of his life, Natalia Sadova, the daughter of a noble birth, who was studying art at the Sorbonne in Paris. 
she would be the mother of his two sons. In Russia, pogroms against the Jews were beginning to really heat up. One in Kishinev was based on rumors that a young Russian boy was murdered by Jews in order to use his blood to make matzah for Passover. Over 50 Jews were murdered and over 700 homes were vandalized and looted. The riot went on for three days without any interference from the authorities. They didn't care. The ministers in Russia warned the Jews that this system of pogroms might continue if they didn't stop their sons and daughters from joining the revolutionary movements that were spreading all over the country. Minister of the Interior Vyacheslav von Plev claimed that Jews accounted for 90% of all revolutionaries in Western Russia, which was way, way overstated. Theodor Herzl, the founder of the modern Zionist movement, met von Plev and Prime Minister Sergei Witte to offer them a way out of the problem by offering Jews another avenue to focus on instead of joining revolutionary groups. And that was to work at establishing a new motherland. Both Plev and Vuitti, they agreed with Herzl, but little came out of it. Back in London, the revolutionaries at Iskra were outraged at Herzl's suggestion. They condemned any thought of having Jews leave the revolution to focus on the Jewish homeland. Trotsky wrote articles blasting Herzl and the whole Zionist movement. The Second Congress of the Social Democrats was sent for Brussels on July 17th, but the Belgian police began to put the heat on, so the group headed back to London. Trotsky was the representative for the Siberian Social Democratic Workers' Union. The Jewish Bund was represented at the meeting with an agenda calling for Jews to unite under its banner and fight the Tsarist regime. Lenin and his fellow editors at Iskra were vehemently opposed to the idea, believing that this would split the movement up and cause it to be weakened. Martov and Trotsky, two of the three Jews amongst the seven, spoke against the Bund. Trotsky believed that Jews needed to abandon their beliefs and customs and assimilate themselves as Russians and, more importantly, revolutionaries apart from their religion. He believed that they were, they were being parochial and needed to be more universal in their approach. After the meeting, Lenin wanted to change the editorial board of Iskra by removing Axelrod, Zazulich, and Potrasov because of their lack of contributions. This move created a bit of animosity amongst the group, especially and surprisingly with Trotsky, someone that Lenin believed would side with him. Leon felt uncomfortable with what Lenin was doing and foresaw what would to come if he were to come into power in Russia. This would lead to the breakup of the Social Democrats into the Bolsheviks, which means being in the majority, and Mensheviks, meaning being in the minority. Over the coming weeks, Trotsky would rail against Lenin and the way he wanted to centralize the movement in the hands of a chosen few. He realized that doing this would create a dictatorial situation no different from what was going on in Russia under the Tsar. He denounced Lenin as the party's disorganizer. He compared him to Robespierre as a vulgar farce resembling historic tragedy. This split with Lenin, which was become quite nasty, would last for 14 years until the revolution of 1917. Trotsky wrote a pamphlet in 1904 denouncing Lenin as approach to power. He said, and you really got to listen to this, this is fascinating, quote, the party organization at first substitutes itself for the party as a whole. 
Then the central committee substitutes itself for the organization. And finally, a single dictator substitutes himself for the central committee. Leon Trotsky saw the rise of people like Stalin in 1904 as inevitable if the Bolsheviks came to power. It is part of Trotsky's hypocrisy when he would help them come to power and carry out what he foresaw, which of course would lead to his ouster and eventual murder. In 1904, Russia went to war with the Japanese, which was to be disastrous for the Tsar and his country. Lenin believed that the revolutionaries should support the Japanese, while Trotsky was appalled at that position. Despite being against the Tsar, we should all be behind Russia, was Leon's point of view. Lenin would make the same call during World War I, backing the Germans instead of his own country. With the destruction of the Russian fleet at the Battle of Port Arthur, rumblings were spreading throughout the country, with many totally dissatisfied with the ministers of the country. They could not bring themselves to condemn the Tsar, as he was their batushka, their father figure, and it was those around him who were evil and corrupt. But on January 9, 1905, this was to change. A peaceful demonstration led by an Orthodox priest named Father Grigory Capone headed towards the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to ask the Tsar for universal civil rights and some democratic representation. They were carrying religious icons and pictures of Nicholas II in hopes he would hear their pleas. They believed he would do the right thing. Problem was, he wasn't there, and the troops demanded that the thousands of demonstrators disband. Of course, they refused, and the troops fired, killing well over 100 people. Rioting spread over the city in protest. In Geneva, Trotsky heard of the news and was thrilled. He wrote, quote, We have waited her. We have never doubted her. For many years, she was only a deduction from our doctrine, at which the non-entities of every political shape mocked. With her first sweep, she has already uplifted society. Before January 9, our demand for a republic seemed fantastic, doctrinaire, and disgusting to all liberal pundits. One day of revolution was enough. One magnificent contact between the Tsar and the people was enough for the idea of constitutional monarchy to become fantastic, doctrinaire, and disgusting. The real monarch has destroyed the idea of the monarch. The revolution has come, and she has put an end to her political childhood. Trotsky believed the revolution to overthrow the Tsar was at hand. He was close, but not close enough. He headed towards Russia, stopping in Vienna to stay with his friend Victor Adler and raise money, before he headed off to Kiev, where he'd meet up with his second wife, Natalia Sadova. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as we cover the revolutionary years of the life of Leon Trotsky from 1905 to around 1917. Don't forget to drop by the blog site where you can, if you'd like to, make a donation, big or small, to keep the podcast going. Also, join us on Facebook as well, where you can ask a question, leave a message, or make a suggestion. So as always, das vidanya y spasiva bolshoya.